Hi, this is Tamson Green. And this is Dan Abuhoff. Tamson and Dan read the paper on Sunday, December 4th. Right. 2022. And we were supposed to be going to the theater today. Yeah, we, we had no plans to do a podcast today because we were going to report on our theater trip. We were going to Classic Stage Company to see a man of no importance, and I got an email this morning which said that the performance was canceled because there was um, COVID detected with respect to at least one of the cast members. And this is the kind of thing that's never happened to us, but I think it's happened to some other people. I know it has because we were going to go with uh, Dixon Cuff. And Dixon Cuff is sort of the curse of COVID when it comes to theater. Would this be the second or third time this happened third to Dixon? Time. Third, third time. It's unbelievable because he doesn't go to the theater. He's never made it to the theater. He's <laughs> had th- This is his third attempt to get to the theater, and every time it's been canceled by COVID, right? He goes to the theater. I don't think that's true, honey. I think he's over three. I know Music Man was one of them, and what was the other one? Oh, Company. Yeah. Major theater productions, one in which he was sitting in the audience at company. And uh, Patti Lapone came out and started just uh, singing a few tunes because they were sending everybody home because there was COVID in the, in the cast. So in any event, there we go. It's a story. We'll see it in a week or two. Uh, but it's been a busy week because it's been a pepper week. And right. as, as people say, when you have a two-year-old around, there's chaos and it's great, but it is chaos. And it's exhausting. Yes. It is. So we're still we're still coming back from that, but it was a great, a super great holiday. Yeah. And I have to say that, uh, you know, the uh, interaction of the kids together. Yeah. Uh, the two cousins, Pepper and the two Hossie. babies. Yeah. Uh, was was hilarious. It was yeah. a lot of fun. They do communicate in uh, their own way. Yeah, and then you know, they each have their own ideas of how to do things. Yes, but they do. But they um, they put that forward in an affable way. And, uh, most of the time. Most of the time. Most of the time. Well, they don't tussle, uh, except inadvertently. But uh, well, we did have a together. great holiday. Um, lots of fun and uh, lots of good food, mm-hmm. and some uh, nice adventures, including uh, taking Pepper to the uh, Christmas lights, the local Christmas lights. Right uh, at Peddler's Village. Which, uh, she literally shrieked with delight. She did, and it was late at night for her. It was like a nine o'clock, which is past her bedtime. And she had, was low energy until she got out of the car, and then she kind of flipped out. In a good way. In a good way, yeah. yeah she had a great time. And it just made you remember why we do all this Christmas stuff. Yeah. Because at the very beginning, when kids are just catching on, it's magical for them. Yeah. And you spend the rest of your life trying to make Christmas magical again yeah. for kids. And I don't think you ever reach those heights, the two-year-old... You know, sprinting, sprinting at the sprinting lights, sprinting to the lights, yeah. heights again. So, yeah. anyway, so um, we have uh, tomorrow. Um, I have to say, uh, happy birthday, Bryce. Oh yeah, right. My happy younger birthday. brother right. is having uh, a birthday, and I uh, hope he has a lot of good cake to eat. Sure, why not? Among other things. Yeah. And on a sad note, uh, last week uh, we lost my father's cousin. Gordon Granger. Mm-hmm. And uh, Gordon was a super charming guy. Yeah. And uh, we we were estranged as families for years, mm-hmm. maybe 30 years, and um, somehow got back in touch. Mm-hmm. And I just, uh, it's one of those regrets that you have that, uh, you know, I didn't uh, spend enough time uh 
Well, we got to know him the last few years. Well, we weren't estranged in a sense. You know, your your father was estranged from Gordon. Well, it was like a family feud. No, I understand, but it's not. Nobody considered. We we weren't a participant in the family feud. We just weren't. We're we're just not uh, uh, in any way dealing with that side of the family. But other people had drawn the lines. No, no, all right, let's, let's just not even get into that. that that's well. I don't want uh, people no. think we had to turn around. We never had a negative view of Gordon. No, no, no. Um, but anyway, he was a terrific guy with great stories right. about my father, and uh, really, um, and I've, I've talked about this before on the podcast. And uh, he went to Princeton. I went to Princeton. Uh, he. Um, uh, Grew up for a while. Lived in Cranberry with my grandparents, mm-hmm. and uh, and was almost was like my father's little brother. Uh, so uh, you know, there's a lot of uh, fun family connections there that uh, I finally woke up to mm-hmm. in my old age. Yeah, he and, was uh, 90, ninety three, so he, he must have graduated Princeton in fifty or fifty one or something. So like our that. condolences go out to yeah. his. Uh, Family, especially uh, his wife Marilyn, who's been uh, such a delight for me to correspond with and talk to in the past couple of years, and um, he will be missed. Mm-hmm. He will be missed. Okay, so uh, I agree with that. Uh, yeah, he was a he was an interesting guy. Um, nice guy. Not bitter at all about your father, by the and way. And you, let's face it. You mainly like Gordon because he's a Mets fan and a Giants. You know, fan. I didn't even know that. I didn't even know uh, that. Right? I mean, you can it's, sense. It's it. remarkable you can sense the that someone. I can tell you, having sat through a Giant game today, it's amazing that someone a Mets fan and a Giant fan could live that long. Right? It's it's, <laughs> it's it's a great accomplishment. So uh, here's something in the paper that just kind of rocked me. I didn't know what to make of this, and still don't. So I'm just throwing it out there. Article in the Times says number one movie in, of all time, Jean Dielman. And um, saying, what is Jean Dielman? What are they talking about? Well, it turns out that there is a European poll uh, by, well, it's by the British magazine Sight and Sound of greatest films of all time. They take it every 10 years. And uh, I guess some in some quarters it's regarded as uh, significant. Uh, and uh, the leading movie of all time, the biggest vote getter, was a movie called Jean Dielman. Um and I never heard of this movie. Uh, and I don't think you ever heard of it either. No. And uh, I asked around a little bit. No, I know. Uh, but I'm no, not a movie buff. I'm not a movie buff either. But you see, here's the thing. Uh, the other movies on the list are all the usual suspects. It's not like, you know, sure, I understood it's an international list. But even so, number two is Vertigo. Number three is Citizen Kane. You know, you see on the list uh, Space Odyssey, Mulholland Drive. You know, there's only one musical in the top ten. Can you guess what it is? No. Singing, right. singing in the Rain. Singing in the Rain? It's considered the number ten movie of all time. Uh, yeah, it's kind of an odd list. Godfather. You, so you know, the it's the usual... So what's your point? My point is I don't... Uh, I'm just stunned. I'm just startled that I would... Are you going to watch the movie? I don't know. I'm not particularly drawn to it, but... Uh, but uh, <laughs> But it's the best movie of all time. No, it's not. See, the, the whole thing's phony, but... They did it. They do it every ten years. Okay, so uh, all right. You would expect there is some consistency, particularly since it's very rare for a movie made in the previous ten years to even make the list. There's a so recent. Was this on the list? The, yeah, the ten years ago. List? Yeah, so the previously number one was Vertigo, number two was Citizen Kane, and and Jean Dielman was number thirty six. And somehow in the last ten years, 
It grew, it went up from 36 to 1. Uh, does that make any sense? No. So, uh, who knows? I think you should watch it. Uh, maybe I will. Maybe I will. But I don't even know what, how you would uh, tune into it. Um, I, I, I think Mrs. Google will help Ms. you with that. Yeah, okay. Well, look, I just want to get out there. For those of you who are adventurous and looking for the best movie of all time, Jean Dielman. Yeah. Right. Uh, it's, uh, what's it? It's from, made in Brussels, right? Yeah. So I found I saw an interesting article about Queens. Yeah. Uh, by the way, uh, cousin Gordon was born in Queens. Right. Uh, and uh, this was uh, an article in the New York Times a week or two ago: dueling dreams for a derelict rail line. And uh, there was a, a little piece of the uh, LIRR that went between. Went through Queens, yeah. between like the main line and the Atlantic branch mm-hmm. of the LIRR. Right. And uh, due to declining ridership, yes. it closed down in the 60s. Right. And it's elevated. And mm-hmm. uh, ever since then, it's just been derelict. Mm-hmm. And, it, you know, it was, uh, I guess at a certain point, it was in great disrepair and it, you know, was a hangout for, you know, bad behavior, and so on. And, uh, you know, uh, kids would have fun sneaking up there and exploring around. It seemed like a great adventure. Uh, But in the last, I don't know, 10 or 15 years, people have been working hard to clean it up Mm -hmm. and make it like a, um, you know, park. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, inspired perhaps by the High Line. You know, the High Line um, converted rail line is such a success mm-hmm. as as a city park and it's uh, um, so now people are saying can we make this a real thing and uh, there's a proposal put together there's uh, money that's been dedicated to call, you know calling it the queen's way all right and uh, but at the same time there are other people who are saying uh, actually queens needs more Transportation, right? You know, there are people who are not anywhere near a rail line, and you know, this could be used to benefit people who need that. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, but it it seems a little bit that the Queensway, the park idea, has the momentum and uh, you know more of the money uh, at the moment. Mm-hmm. And and you got to assume that just to make a park has got to be a lot cheaper. Than well, driving a rail there, line. There's a lot more moving pieces to get a rail line going. Yeah. But, uh, so, but that's that's an interesting conundrum. Do you you know what benefits? Well, it depends the on the public area. more. Yeah. Uh, in this situation. Yeah. So, but uh, so we'll see what happens. But uh, you know, it's an interesting uh, project that people have been working on for years. Yeah. Well, that's part of the problem too. That those things take years. Um. Yeah, it takes you back to the the Robert Moses play that uh, is downtown and how and how not that downtown it's in Hudson uh, Yards, the yeah. one with uh, Ray Fiennes, and uh, depending on what your political persuasion is, he's either you're either watching the play and saying what a genius or this is this man was the greatest villain of all time, but uh, he was famous for getting things done more he than anything else. For getting things he got done, things done, but uh, also. It's a much different story in that, you know, he would mow things down. That's he, how, 
destroy but, but that's things how you, to move on to something else for the public good. This is something that's you know people have kind of resurrected. I understand, but you still pull together. You know, yeah, I think I, and, uh, it feels like to get anything done, up. done. There is a lot of there's a little mowing, uh, mowing things down. I mean, uh, inevitably, at least in some people's view, it's because it means their their thought, their plan, their development is put aside. But uh, well, we'll see what happens. So on the transportation note, um, winter tires, Tamden. Winter tires. Turns yeah. out Dan Meal of, of the Wall Street Journal right, says... Well, why winter tires? I mean, I grew up, yeah. you know, changing to snow tires. So did I. We uh, had a set why of... Why did that ever stop? Oh, I can explain that. Because we all grew up with cars that had what are called bias ply tires. And at a certain point when you saw the, uh, the, the German-Japanese invasion of European cars, smaller cars, more economical cars, they also came not just with smaller size... But they came with radial tires. And the thought was that radial tires were all-weather tires. Okay. And that's what changed. Uh, but Daniel is saying they're not all-weather tires? He says they're not all-weather. Uh, they're not all-season. They're three-season tires. Uh-huh. They're not four-season tires, according to him. The way Neil puts it is this. He says proper winter tires constitute the cheat code of extreme conditions. While other drivers on lesser tires may swivel on and off the road, the repaired driver can hold course. Uh, he says it makes a uh, big difference. If only, re- here's another quote, if only regular civilians, that's you and me, had a chance to compare a set of kick-ass winter tires with what the industry calls imprecisely all-season tires, we would all make the change. Well, uh, I I haven't heard that. So what do you ever do? Express- do you put the winter tires just on your, like, front wheel drive yeah, you put them on well, look he's, he he doesn't really expect anybody how many do we have to buy because well, tires he, cost a lot of money he says you know i would get all four i would have it would cost three thousand dollars you know he, he, it's a dream scenario he doesn't expect anybody to do this and, and, and to put it more precisely he said you can't sell this idea to people who live in an area where it's only one or two days a year that you would be called upon to have this kind of extreme driving equipment. It's just a non-sale. But it's uh, in places like Finland, and by the way, Finland makes the best winter <laughs> tires, according okay. to Dan Neal. Uh, it makes all the difference. And he says, you know, when you're on a road and you, you got a guy behind you, let's say, who's in a big rig type vehicle, maybe an industrial vehicle, working, you know, uh, certainly not a passenger vehicle, and you say, well, he's moving fine on the road. It's a big, heavy vehicle. Uh, you know, that guy's got an advantage. Uh, he says, hey, the truth is, it's not that safe for that person to drive at any real speed unless he's got uh, fantastic tires on your regular tires, uh, even bigger tires that you would go with that kind of vehicle, radial tires. He says the margin for error is very small, even with people who think when they're riding in uh, more heavy-duty vehicles, they have an advantage. He said they actually don't. So anyway, that's his thought. His other thought was that um, he loves a new Cadillac, which is kind of shocking because Cadillac is kind of old news, kind of gets no respect. It's kind of a faded, meaningless status symbol in many people's minds at this point. It was never considered a great performance car. Uh, and he says, not so anymore. They've come up. The new Lyric, L-Y-R-I-Q, is an EV. He says, which has a lot of great features. 
uh, which he goes on and on in the article about. And importantly, only, I use the word only advisedly, cost $62,000. And that's a good price for an EV, and it's a good price for a Cadillac. Mm -hmm. So the idea that you get a Cadillac EV, which is a full-size car, Mm -hmm. for $62,000, he says is a total change in Cadillac's approach to the marketplace. And he says they're going to be totally EV, by the way, in uh, 10 years or so. So, uh, how do you like that for a turn of events? Is it a sedan? or? It is. I'm showing you a picture right now. It is... uh, it is what he calls a full-body wagon. It is not an SUV. In other words, it doesn't have the height of an SUV. It doesn't really look like a wagon. Uh, he, he describes it as a wagon. Well, if you look at it, it's kind of long, yeah, and the back is a hatch-type thing. Bit, but yeah, not, not much. But he's a big believer in uh, more streamlined uh, models. He doesn't believe in SUVs. He feels they cut down too much on mileage. So he loves it. Loves it. So that's our next card. So on the theory that you can never have too many articles about ice cream. Yeah. Especially artisanal ice cream, right? Which we seem to talk about every ten minutes. Yeah. Um, there was uh, under the an you know entrepreneurship yeah um, column by Kim Severinsen, uh, kind of an interview with two um, ice cream artisanal mm. ice cream entrepreneurs, Jenny Britton Bauer, who does Jenny's. Ice cream. Yeah, we saw that in California. Yeah, we see you see it everywhere. Really? You, yeah, you do. Okay. You see okay. it um, everywhere. Where where it is? Uh, okay. Um, started her business selling at a farmers market by two thousand two. She started the business was selling in some grocery stores, and uh, by now is sold across the country. Mm-hmm. It, more than 75 branded shops. In 2021, the company brought in $95.7 million. Wow. So we saw one of the branded shops in California. Yeah, we saw yeah. one of the shops in California. Yeah. Okay. And it's an interview with her and Pooja Bavishi, who has a shop, Malai, in Brooklyn. Mm. And uh, she sells in a variety of places uh, as well. But she's basically, she's her, her ice cream is found in four dozen locations in mm-hmm. the New York, New Jersey, Connecticut area. Okay. So um, Jen, Jenny is kind of acting as a almost a mentor mm-hmm. to her. And they have an interesting discussion about, you know, what drew them to ice cream. Do you know one of the reasons they both love dealing with ice cream is the smell. Okay. And you may say, well, frozen things don't smell. Yeah. And they say, no, it doesn't start. You don't get the scent until the ice cream is melting in your mouth. And then this kind of explosion happens. Really? And it's a whole sensual experience. Oh, all right. Uh, so they're very into the smell and the idea that fat, you know, fat, butter fat is one of the great carriers of flavor. Okay. But, but you knew that because anytime you have fat in anything, it tastes better. Uh-huh. It's not a matter of just tasting richer. Yeah. The flavors are better. Right. Okay. And that's what they say. It's a, you know, it's it's a great way to play with flavor. It's a great medium mm-hmm. to play with flavor. So that was kind of interesting to me. The other thing that was interesting is discussions about actually running their business. Mm-hmm. Okay. And Jenny has been through it all. Okay, yeah. she had two kids uh, at a certain point. So she's a mother and an entrepreneur. And um, in I guess it was two thousand 
15, uh, a Nebraska Department of Agriculture inspector found listeria in a pint of ice cream uh, from their company, and they ended up with a 265-ton recall. Oh, God. Okay. And uh, basically, um, they said, you know, um, how did you survive? Basically, we didn't survive. We just uh, went uh, pretty much completely bust and had to build it all back up again Mm. kind of thing. Mm. Um, And uh, so it was interesting reading this article, uh, you know, having her discuss how that happened and how she proceeds now so that Mm. that doesn't happen again. And she says one of the interesting things was the people from the ice cream industry reached out to help. They had to shut down their factories, and other companies said, hey, we will make your ice cream for you, Mm. uh, and you can still distribute Mm. uh, ice cream until all this stuff is kind of worked out. Mm -hmm. Uh, So that was very interesting. The other thing that was an interesting discussion to me was the discussion of finding good people. Mm -hmm. And I know when I had my own business, that's always, you know, that's always the biggest problem, right. finding good people. How, how do you know what's going to be good? And, and, and Jenny Bauer says, you know, she's in a really good position now um, that uh, they have top talent really coming to them. Um, but it's still hard to choose who is the right person. Is this person going to either fit into mm-hmm. our culture and or challenge it in the right way or not? Okay, the hardest thing you try to, is it, she says as, as a, a um, boss, is you try to please too many people. At some point, you have to put your foot down and say, it's going to be my way. People get really upset about that. They do. At some point, you have to let people go and realize you need people who will step behind you, not in front of you. That's everything. So that was an interesting remark mm-hmm. to me because, you know, it's usually all this talk about one big happy family and, mm-hmm. you know, how do we work together? And here is a woman who is standing up and saying, sometimes you just have to do it your way. Yeah. Do what you think is right. And, uh, you know. And people have to follow. Yeah, people have to follow that. Yeah. Okay. So and, all right. So what are good? Are you getting into the ice cream business? Is this what you're telling no, no, me? No, 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 no. You make your own ice cream. The, this this is our chance. The yeah. end of the article is that this is a super tough, crazy business. Uh, one of the hardest parts is that it you know is shipping frozen. Sure. And uh, and you have to in order to get your ice cream places, you have to do business with other people. You know, and have trust in them to uh, yeah. handle the product, etc. So aside from all the, the complexities of producing uh, the ice cream without creating listeria, uh, etc., um, it, it just sounds like a nightmare. Mm-hmm. And yet um, they both say it's, it's a beautiful thing. Uh, well, it's a success. story we like it, to tell. It would be less beautiful if they were out of business at this point. That, you know, I, I think you should consider it. Oh my God! It sounds well. You could stay sounds, local. You no. could stay local. No. All I'm right. Just gonna well, we'll, make we'll, a little ice cream. We'll discuss it later. Eat a little ice cream. Okay. Well, let's talk about business a little bit more. Investing. This is this is totally an advice podcast since we're 
letting you know how to handle, uh, you know, things. Except for exercise. We're telling you what movies we're to not, watch. We're no, telling you but uh, not, but what not, cars to buy, what tires to put on. You know. Uh, so here you go. All right. Uh, article in the Times about investing. Uh, usually that's pretty boring. Um, this was kind of interesting. Now, we've always, uh, many of us are familiar with the notion that um, managed mutual funds, surprisingly, uh, don't really do much better than uh, uh, passive funds, than just, uh, you know, buying the market, mm -hmm. e ETFs or a Vanguard fund, uh, which is a little bit surprising because managers of funds make money by their presumed ability to pick the right stocks and to, how shall I put it, beat the index. Uh, and it's always, you know, the thought has always floated around that the ability to do that over time is exaggerated. Well, it's more than exaggerated. According to the Times, it really now, at least in the most recent times, doesn't exist at all. And the way they came to that conclusion was this. Uh, there are two measures that they used. One is they, they took a look at, at all the managed mutual funds, and they looked to see uh, how many of the managed mutual funds were in the top quartile of all funds uh, over the last five years. And what I mean over the last five years, in each of the last five years, okay? Uh, and the answer was none. Hmm. And then they said, okay, let's measure it one other way. Uh, how many of the uh, managed mutual funds were in the top 50%? That's two quartiles. The top 50%, just above average, for each of the last five years. And the answer was there were some, but there were only 1% of managed funds were in the top 50% in each of the last five years. And to help you think about that, say, look, let's say there was a uh, high school with a large high school, a graduating class of 2000. And I told you, and I asked you how many of those students in the class of 2000 were consistently in the top quartile because they were a little smarter than the average bear. In each of the last five years, you'd expect to be, you know, some significant number. And they're saying here the answer is none. And they said, and if I said to you, and how many uh, of these students are just always in the top half of the class, which this doesn't seem to be a very high standard in each of the last five years, if the answer of the 2000 class was only 20, you'd be a little surprised. So, uh, and I would not ask them for advice. Yes. <laughs> well, that's what that's where you go with this. Uh, so it's kind of stunning to me statistically. Um, okay, so there was we talked last week about a uh, newly discovered recording of Barbara Streisand, uh, which was called is called Live at the Bonsoir, uh, which is a recording of songs at uh, that she did live act in the village in 1962. And I was telling you, I heard it, and it's it's great. And she's very young. She's 20 years old, and she does it, and it's just, you know, it's an amazing recording. Uh, well, the Times just had a little uh, segment in which people apparently wrote in in reaction to the article on it. And they received quite a few letters about how wonderful the recording was and uh, what their great memories of Barbara Streisand, including seeing Barbara Streisand in the village when she was 20, and how they've grown old together, and et cetera, et cetera, what you'd expect. So um, 
I think, well, it's true. I mean, it's... it's gonna, a st- are you going to read us some of the letters? I'll just read you... Well, well here's here's the kind of uh, emotional letter. this is just a segment where you're saying people write letters to the New York Times. Okay. All right. All right. This person tells a story. My wife and I were drawn to the Blue Angel on a snowy Manhattan night in 1962 when Streisand sang Happy Days Are Here Again in a, as a slow, dreamy ballad. I was simply taken over by her emotional power. Sixty years since that night when we and Streisand were all just kids, my wife and I are still in love. And our memory of that night still shines as brightly as Barbara's lasting stardom. So that's the kind of letters you have. But oh, the, so it wasn't really about the album. It was just this, here's one reminiscence. About, let me give you one about the album. Okay. Here's another quote. It's simple and it's short. Hearing Streisand sing on the Bone Sore album for the first time was just like seeing Muhammad Ali box for the first time. This is different. And this is great. And I, I think that's right. So in any event, I don't want to go into a depth. We've talked about it already. Uh, so, <laughs> well, but uh, it just tells you, you rarely see the letters Yeah. to to about the articles, the comments about the articles. Um, well, in the Times, I tend to look at them a little bit. It, well, you don't. You don't. Oh, online, I don't see the comments online. Online, online there might be tons. You're tons, absolutely right. There are tons. Yeah, I and miss that. Often they're the best part of the article. Well, that's you what know, I lose from really reading fun, it in paper. And it just really gives you a picture of you know the personalities yeah. uh, of the people who are reading these articles. Yeah. And, and that's you know. Well, you should look online. You're probably going to see some interesting reactions to the Bonsoir article. So I'm recommending that live at the Bonsoir. Uh, and you had something. Okay, so here. an article caught our eye because of Gordon's passing, and it was written by Betty Rollin, How to Talk to a Widow. So uh, she lost her husband, and it's it's a discussion about, uh, you know, it starts out saying, uh, you know, somebody wrote me an email saying, how are you doing? And she said, better. Yeah. And they said, oh, I didn't know you were sick. And she, she's like, no, better. <laughs> yeah, I lost my husband. I'm, you know, that it was only a year ago. I'm still, yeah. you know what do you expect Um, kind of thing. And so it's it's an article kind of talking about the frustrations of uh, um, dealing with your grief and, uh, you know, I guess trying to give a few pointers to people to, you know, how to uh, address. Yeah. I mean, I mean, she's direct about, she feels she's, it's not like she's, one of the very few people who were widows. I mean, Betty Rollins is not young. She's probably, she's probably mid-70s or maybe even close to 80. I don't know. She's in her 80s. Yeah, she's in her 80s. Uh, and there are a lot of women in their 80s who are widows. Uh, but uh, she's making observations about how she copes, and she's making the point that she still finds it difficult to cope. But, uh, yeah. And um, so... <laughs> I, I, I found you liked the article I, tell you, I found I, it somewhat frustrating because she just what she does she just tells people what not to do look she's okay? adult look Betty she Rollins says, look, don't look. write just one email okay first of all Betty Rollins has been a writer for a long time she's I not understand. somebody okay and and she had a best selling book years ago so she's some experience she, she picked up her pen she obviously feels you know, still daunted uh, by things generally, somewhat challenged, certainly still feel has strong feelings of loss with respect to her husband. 
And she doesn't have the solution. I, I agree with you that the, it doesn't live up to the headline of the article, which is how to talk to a widow, because she's basically saying, in not so many words, there is nothing you can say to a woman who's lost her husband, yeah. at least immediately after it happens. There's nothing you can do. But what she does say, that on the positive side, maybe even indirectly, is that the way she benefits from dealing with other people is those people who have kept in touch with her uh, in the months and even years later and continue to talk with her, maybe support her, or at least recognize that for her, the loss doesn't go away. That, that's, that's her point, I think, whether it's, she makes it in so many words. And of course, she has that observation at the end of the article that I told you I liked. Which... Yeah, and she said, speaking personally, my Christian friends sent flowers. My Jewish friends sent food. Food is better. So there you go. So at least there's that. Uh, yeah, it's kind of a heartfelt article. You feel kind of bad for her, but uh, I, I think, you know. Uh, well, she just, uh, I think she's there's happy something. to have support, but she doesn't want people to be saying, all right, it's been a year, you know, uh, get over it already yeah. kind of thing. She doesn't get over um, it, and she's so, not going to, and she's looking for yeah. continued support. And I think that's fair. So, um, I mean, look, it, it reminds you to keep in contact with folks that you know have lost uh, their husband or wife, which I think is is uh, is right. Gaylord Perry died. We'll end on that note. Gaylord Perry. Gaylord Perry was a pitcher for the Giants. That's how I knew growing up. He was uh, he was their second best pitcher. Uh, he's famous for several reasons. He did win the Cy Young Award as the best pitcher in the National League. He also had a brother, uh, Jim Perry, and the two of them were, had the record for most wins for a brother combination. Uh, and he uh, was in a famous trade for a fellow named Sam McDowell. Sudden Sam was considered a great pitcher, and uh, Gaylord not that. And yet Sudden Sam f- faded out, and Gaylord Perry went on to 10 more years and ended up in the Hall of Fame. But the other reason that uh, Gaylord Perry was famous because he was notorious for throwing a spitball. And uh, throughout his career, he was constantly being accused of putting Vaseline on the ball or perspiration on the ball or, as he put it, KY on the ball. Uh, And uh, when you did that kind of thing, it made the ball move in a peculiar way. and It was very difficult for the batter to hit it. So it wasn't unusual for batters to complain, for umpires to walk out and check uh, Gaylord Perry's hat or, uh, you know, his hands. And, and there was even a moment in the playoffs with the Mets this year where the Met manager accused the opposing pitcher in the playoffs of having something. And the umpire went and was looking behind the fellow's ears on national television. <laughs> so there is such a thing. And Perry kind of didn't, kind of played this up because he, he thought that whether he did it or not, uh, it was an advantage to have it in the batter's heads that, that, that he was doing it. So he wrote a book called Me and the Spitter, uh, while he was still pitching. And uh, so he he kind of was, he played with it. He was kind of clever So regardless, he wanted people to think he was throwing yeah, the spitball? Yeah, because it would, okay. they, they would feel defeated before they got up. But the, the best part of this article about Perry is, again, he's in the Hall of Fame. Uh, and this is, you'll appreciate this, will remind you a little bit about of Pepper. When Perry was pitching for the Giants in 1971, a television reporter asked Allison, his daughter, five years old, if her dad threw a spitball. She replied, it's a hard slider. 
Now, can you see Pepper doing that? If Zeke was accused of throwing a spitball? It's a hard slider. Yeah, I can just hear her saying that. Okay, that wraps it up for uh, this week. Uh, this is Dan Abuhoff. And Tamsin Granger with Dan and Tamsin. No, it's Tamsin and Dan. It, don't, don't walk away from me. It's Tamsin and Dan, Dan read the paper. Today was kind of Dan and Tamsin. Thank, I appreciate that. We'll see you next week.